up on today's show, we're winning the vaccine battle, slowly but surely, in Alberta, fueled by Gen Xers eager to get the shot. We'll talk to Timothy Caulfield about how the tide may be turning. But before the vaccines finally went out, where are we now? There are many experts saying we're in big trouble. We'll speak with an emergency physician about our current condition and big changes to the province's elections laws. Last Tuesday, the eligible age range for the AstraZeneca vaccine was expanded in Alberta. As you know, anyone 40 to 55 years old could now sign up and get the shot. And boy, did they ever in a big way. More than 50,000 booked appointments the first two days. That's five times more than they had the entire week before when it was 55 to 64. Social media, too, filled with people thrilled to report that they'd gone out and they'd gotten the jab. Now, Dr. Timothy Caulfield is the Canada Research Chair in Health, Law, and Policy at the University of Alberta. He joins us now. Uh, Mr. Caulfield, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Shay. Always good to chat. Thank you so much for joining us. Also a prolific author, we should point out, and creator of the very popular TV series, The User's Guide to Cheating Death. Um, when we take a look at what happened last week, obviously it's encouraging news. We want people to get vaccinated as much as possible, and the enthusiasm was really there among this age group. Yeah, I, I loved it. I loved, first of all, just to see that straight-up enthusiasm. Yeah. We need to get, you know, vaccines in people's arms. And, and I, also, I, I also love the social media stuff. I know some people hate selfies, full stop. You know, they just don't like selfies at yeah. all. Uh, but I, I thought it was a great, a great trend also, you know, because, you know, we want to get the word out. We want to normalize the process. And there's a little research to back that up, that that's a good idea. So love the enthusiasm. And I love the social media stuff. Interesting. Okay, we'll get into that. Um, why was the enthusiasm there, do you think? Why did this age group seem so eager to, to get out and get vaccinated? Well, you know, the, if you look at the data, it's actually a little more complex than some people might realize. Um, if, if you look at the, consistently, the surveys have shown that it's actually the older demographic that has been keen and more supportive of, of the vaccine. So we're talking, you know, 55 and up, right? So the classic kind of boomer generation. Um, and uh, as we get younger, that, that enthusiasm wanes a little bit. You know, Canadians in general are still, you know, quite supportive of, of the vaccines, but we do see the hesitancy go up a little bit. So I think what's happening here is you have, on the one hand, you have more and more boomers getting vaccinated. If you look at the really older demographic, you know, 80 and up, you have, we're hovering around 80% vaccinate with one, at least one vaccine, vaccine in Canada. So I think what happened is we're kind of left with uh, the, demo, the older demographic, those who are perhaps a little bit more hesitant, who haven't gotten it, so we're hearing from them, and it, so that makes that demographic seem less enthusiastic. On the other end, we have all of these Gen Xers who could not wait, you know, mm-hmm. they're pent-up enthusiasm, and so we're hearing from them now that it's uh, available. And I think that's part of it. I think, you know, a lot of people, like if you're in that 55 to 64 age group and you're thinking about it, and we know the messaging around the whole AstraZeneca has had some problems. There's no doubt. So if you're sitting in there and thinking, you know what, I'm probably going to be up for my Pfizer or my Moderna in a couple of weeks anyway. I'll just wait this out. But if you're somebody who's 42 with no pre-existing conditions, you're going to be at the end of the line, right? So you're probably thinking, well, I can get this one now. Who knows when the other ones may be made available? So there's probably more willingness to jump in there, right? Yeah, I completely agree, and I agree with both things he said there. You know, the the messaging around AstraZeneca has been less than ideal, and I think it's still, you know, the message we got last week I still think was muddled. You know, the the big headline should always be, uh, and still remains, you know, get the vaccine that's recommended and available to you. I mean, all these vaccines have performed so, so well. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right. So the the thinking is, if if I don't, you know, who knows when uh, when I'm going to get it, right? So Mm -hmm. if I I don't take this one, I may not be able to get a vaccine. 
for a while. So, yeah, I think that that's also true. Now, when we talk about the social media, obviously we're seeing a lot of people going out and saying, I'm getting vaccinated, I'm getting vaccinated. And I think, you know, you sort of create a FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. People might get more interested in doing it because, look, everybody's having so much fun. What about the follow-ups? Because there's a lot of social media, hour six, slight headache, hour eight, might have a chill, not 100% sure. And, you know, minute-by-minute breakdowns of how they're reacting does that help to show that people are going through some very mild symptoms or, or should we just sort of, hey, I got vaccinated and everything's fine? I think it does help. I, I really do. Because, again, what we want to do is normalize the entire entire process. And I, and I think in general, you know, I've been following this, you know, I, I think even, even those side effects uh, uh, posts are still pretty positive, right? They're still positive. Oh, yeah. There's, the, the regret isn't there or anything like that. So I, I think it's, it, it is good because... You know, uh, thankfully, the research tells us uh, overwhelmingly. The research tells us the the side effects are mild. Uh, the serious ones, even moderate ones, are, are relatively rare. The serious ones are extremely rare, right? So, I think having that messaging about both the joy of getting it and and the, the story of how it plays out is great. When we take a look at this whole vaccine hesitancy, and it's grabbed a lot of headlines, and there's a lot of people. Uh, I shouldn't say a lot of people. That's the question I want to put forward to you. When you take a look at the data around this, it seems to me and everybody that I know, and maybe I just travel in a strange circle, everybody is eager and desperate to get their hands on this vaccine. But we keep hearing about people, oh, I'm not doing it. It's a genetic experiment, blah, blah, blah. Really, when you break it down, are we giving what is actually a very small minority too much attention here? Uh, unfortunately, no. You know, unfortunately, no. Uh, the hesitancy is going to be uh, a big issue. You know, uh, it's sort of playing on what I said earlier. As we get more Canadians vaccinated, you know, so the ones that are keen, the ones that want to get this done, we're going to start bumping up against the hesitant. And that's what we're seeing happen in other jurisdictions, the United States. Yes. And, and, and so I think that, so it's going to become increasingly, increasingly irrelevant. And, but I, I think you're right about one, one thing here that's really important. Those are the hardcore deniers, a relatively small cohort, right? And it's going to be very difficult to change their minds. Yep. And they're the ones that are really vocal. It's that movable middle, you know, those ones that are somewhat hesitant that we really have to focus the messaging on. We have to listen to them, get a sense of what they're concerned about, get them good answers so they feel comfortable. Uh, but, yeah, hesitancy, you know, you're looking at, depending on what survey, somewhere between 20 and 25 percent, which isn't insignificant, right, no. you know, when, when you're talking about the need to get to herd immunity. And like you say, there's different categories within that percentage, right? I mean, there are, you know, as they said in Cool Hand Luke, there's so many just can't reach. They're, they're done. They're not getting the vaccine no matter what. They are, that's baked in. But there is that flexible group, and you think talking about it and putting it on social media and saying, hey, I did this, that's a really positive step. Is there something government should be doing as well? I mean, because they have not done a nice job around this AstraZeneca. Let's be honest. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, and, and I understand it's difficult, and I understand the science is, is you know, evolving. Uh, they haven't done a great job around around messaging with AstraZeneca, and and you know in the United States they're struggling with Johnson and Johnson now, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know the, how the regulators talk about their job, what they do, uh, and their conclusions, it matters. So I think it, we need to be clear to the Canadians about what's going on and and why we've had this mixed messaging. Um, yeah, so I do think the government needs to do more, and and yeah, don't focus on those hardcore deniers. You know, always think about the general public as your audience and we have to do that now too yeah exactly okay so go get your shot and put it on twitter that's the message yes please (laughs) all right dr caulfield thanks so much for joining us appreciate it thanks for having me on you bet that is timothy caulfield uh who is a uh researcher at the university of alberta he's also the canada research chair in health law and policy at the university of alberta 
So talking about the COVID situation, you've seen the numbers. And to look at the numbers, you might think Alberta should be a lot more concerned about our current COVID situation than we are. Life seemingly goes on. We have some restrictions in place, even as other provinces are bringing in much harsher restrictions. I mean, travel restrictions and curfews, full-on lockdowns in some places. Yet, on a per capita basis, our case counts are actually the highest in the country and hospitalizations are creeping up more and more every day. There is a growing course of doctors and scientists warning about what might lie ahead for Alberta, though. Dr. Joe Vipon is on the front line, one of the guys working in the hospital, who has been speaking out about this, and he joins us now. Doctor, thanks so much for taking some time this morning. Oh, thanks for your interest. This is uh, important stuff. Yeah, it sure is. I think uh, a lot of people are tired of it. People are exhausted by COVID, but the fact of the matter is we're in a situation here, aren't we? Well, um, yeah, we have the highest... Uh daily per capita cases um, in the country. We have the highest uh, active case rate in the country. I heard recently, I, I, I haven't actually seen the numbers, but somebody has stated that we just passed our active case rate that we had in the second wave, um, and yet we don't have that same sense of urgency to to do what's necessary to limit this. Uh, so, so, yeah, we're in a bit of a pickle. Yeah, um, when we take a look at what's going on with our healthcare system, I mean, the numbers are not quite where they were at their highest point back in December, but they're awfully close. Just what is the current state of the healthcare system in Alberta right now? Um, yeah, I don't know specifically about the capacity of Alberta Health Services and the rest of that because I'm not uh, I'm not on the inside there. I can just talk to the explicit numbers. I can tell you that uh, our ICU rate is just bumping up against. The, the peak, so we're at 140 today. It was up 11 yesterday, and we're 11 from the peak, which was 151 that we hit on December 28th. Um, so, uh, and, and the important thing to know is that that peak in the second wave occurred three weeks after those big restrictions were announced on December 7th. So that's the kind of lag time we have in our system that, in reacting to policy once you know, strong policy is announced. There is a lag to both hospitalizations and to ICU. So even if today, fingers crossed today, there are strong restrictions announced, we can expect another three weeks of rise. You know, if you take a look at it, and I think we might hear this today if we don't see restrictions coming in, I'm not 100% sure that we will. Um, if you take a look at the last four or five days, overall case counts and positivity have been dropping slightly. So we are seeing that come down. Could that be um, somewhat reassuring? Or is that lag time the overriding factor? Yeah, I think it's it's hard to know. I think the big variable that we don't know about is the, the case testing in Calgary. Calgary has the worst case, um, absolute cases in the province. Mm-hmm. And yet we're hearing stories that in Calgary, there's a five-day wait to get a, to get an appointment. I've heard of people driving to Drumheller, uh, driving to, to, to Red Deer to get their testing yeah. done. Um, so I don't know what kind of effect that um, issue in our testing system would have on the absolute numbers. Um, it's really hard to know. Um, so, you know, is the positivity rate is dropping great. We need it to be below 5%. It's, uh, you know, between 8 and 9 at the moment. Um, and we need our our knots, our, our, our rate to be below 1. It's still above 1. Um, so we still have, a, a, you know, a, a rising but not as steeply rising um, uh, daily case rate. Uh, and just remember that everything takes a, a long time to pass through. And so in a perfect world, like, we need to have, a pretty steep drop in our case rates because we're going to have that bleed through of all the um, uh, current cases eventually making its way through our system. 
Um, we need an R that's substantially lower than one, you know, 0.97 or 0.95 is not going to cut it. That just means, you know, we're at above a thousand cases mm-hmm. for days to weeks. So there's a lot of factors that go into this. Um, is it positive that, uh, you know, they're not, you know, we're not a, in, steeply increasing like we were a week ago? Absolutely. I, I, I feel heartened by that. But um, I don't think we're out of the woods. The other side of this, of course, and, 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 you know, people will say, but we vaccinated the most vulnerable. We vaccinated so many of the people that are at risk for severe outcomes. Surely that should change the metrics around this third wave. Yeah, and I think there are some positive things to be seen. We actually have a much, much lower mortality rate this wave than we did in the second wave. Um, and I think that's a testament to the power of vaccination. Go and get vaccinated as soon as possible. Um, but it's important to recognize that so far we've vaccinated about 25% of our population. We're about three, what, 4.35 million um, people in this province, which still means there's you know over 3 million people that are uh, have not had a single vaccine, and even those that have been vaccinated haven't had the two. The vast majority haven't had the two vaccines, um, and a lot of them haven't even had the two weeks in between what it takes for when the vaccine occurs and when we actually have mm-hmm. substantial immunity. So um, in my personal opinion, um, and I think it's important to say, I should have said this at the beginning, but these are the, my views and not the views of Alberta Health Services or the Department of Emergency Medicine at, uh, in, in Calgary. Um, but uh, uh, in my view, I don't think we can vaccinate our way out of this. There's just, um, the, you know, we're we're in the thick of the third wave right now, and it um, it's hard to see how uh, you know our our slow, steady, impressive vaccination rates going to overwhelm the exponential uh, rise of the uh, of the COVID virus and the implications of that. Can you put a timeline on it? Do you have any idea in terms of you know we have you know I think a lot of people would say we we're moving too late already, um, but you know when we sort of take a look at the way these cases work, you know, going through the first and the second wave, when we see a case count like this, we know in two weeks hospitalizations will follow and then a week later ICU. Is there a timeline that you can map out and clearly see a trend? I can just tell you that in the second wave, it took three weeks after the strong restrictions were announced for hospitalizations and ICU to peak. And they peaked at about the same time in late December. So, yeah, we haven't yet announced those restrictions. So we have to look forward to that. I think the other thing that I I really want to reinforce is... um, uh, you know, aside, it's great that we have this decreased mortality, but every single person in the ICU, every single hospitalization um, is a preventable um, illness. And so we know these are generally becoming younger. Uh, are, these are all real human beings that are suffering. And even those that don't get admitted have a risk of something called long COVID. So 10 to 30% of all infections, no matter what your age, no matter what the severity of your initial illness, are going to go on to have some long-term symptoms. And those symptoms can be anywhere from fatigue to shortness of breath to um, cognitive dysfunction to Mm -hmm. loss of taste and smell. Uh, In fact, somebody just tweeted out their story of losing their taste and smell. Uh, They're in month 13 of of having that gone. And, you know, it it seems like a minor thing. Oh, you've lost your taste and smell. Like, big, big deal. But to somebody who loves you know the taste of food who loves the she was talking about how she loves the smell of her children and, and her husband and she's she's lost that now um i you know i don't want to minimize um 
the, the impact that, that even something as simple as losing your taste and smell can have on a, on a, on a patient. Oh, sure. And yeah, we're continuing to learn more about long-term effects as we go. Um, doctor, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me on. That is Dr. Joe Vipond, an ER physician uh, down in Calgary, talking about what he's seeing. And uh, he was one of the doctors that was leading the call for um, some kind of action to be taken this weekend. Right now, we're going to take a few minutes and outline something that's pretty important. And uh, it's a little, you know, it's off in the distance a little bit, but it's going to affect us, every single one of us. The rules around money in municipal politics uh, have changed in our province. The UCP brought in a number of changes, and it will have an impact on this fall's elections. There's no doubt. Uh, Many civic politicians have expressed their frustration already with this, um, and people who monitor democracy say this is going to have a negative effect. Um, The Alberta Urban Municipalities Association says they have some concerns. Um, Basically, they're all saying the same thing. This moves us into a place where big money can have a big impact on the campaign. Sheldine Mensa is a political scientist at uh, McEwen University in Edmonton. He joins us now. Uh, Sheldine, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to talk to you again, sir. It's a pleasure to connect with you again. Yeah, it's been a long, long time. Always nice to chat. Um, Okay, so we know there's a lot of different changes in there. Some of them are more important than others, I think. What do you think are the big ones that people need to be aware of as we head into this fall campaign? Well, so, Shay, there's been changes to the way municipal governance is running this province from from the perspective of the campaign financing rules. When the NDP... Uh, governed Alberta, they introduced some big changes uh, to ban corporate and union donations. Uh, but I think the UCP has introduced some very important changes. Uh, the most important one, I think, is third-party advertisers are now going to be limited uh, in the sense that donors can only donate $30,000 for third-party mm-hmm. advertising. Uh, so that is a big limit there. Uh, and then also, uh, people can now contribute $5,000 per candidate, and they can contribute to an unlimited number of candidates. Uh, so that's another big change. Uh, and then I think one significant change is that incumbents, who typically are very difficult to defeat you know, in our province. Yes, well, exactly, right? Yeah, I think the, the, the UCP government has now introduced uh, a, a, a way of tackling that, which means that all surpluses from past campaigns uh, cannot be used, which means that they have to be donated, and any, any contribution over 1,000 has to be donated to charity. Uh, and I think that is a, a way of giving challenges to incumbents a bit of a, a, a head start. So... What was the thinking around this? Why why did the UCP government think that we needed to remove some of these restrictions on campaign financing? What was the the rationale there? Well, I think the UCP uh, is basically saying that we, we need a, a level playing field. Uh, first of all, I think that the idea is that incumbents have had uh, you know, too much sway. And, and you have to consider that uh, at a municipal level, if you look around the province, typically, uh, especially in the big cities, Edmonton, Calgary, the councils have been very antagonistic to the UCP government, right? Uh, so I think my sense is that they want to give opponents to these 
progressive politicians at the municipal level a fighting chance. You know, so I think some of these measures are designed to uh, encourage more competition uh, than we've, we've had in the past. Um, and the, the argument against these changes, of course, is the fact that now we have um, big money entering in mm-hmm. here and you can have, you know, with these kinds of limits or lack of limits, you can have um, a lot of money thrown into a particular candidate based on a specific issue. This can change from um, being uh, about the candidate to being a particular issue and it becomes somewhat partisan, doesn't it? Yeah, so I think if you look at, uh, for example, the third-party advertising one, that, that is a very interesting one to watch. Um, so third parties are allowed to a contribution limit of $30,000. Now, if you, if you analyze it closely, uh, this is 30000 per donor, which means that if you're a construction group, uh, real estate group, unions or whatever, you can only contribute 30000 mm-hmm. So in some sense, the UCP is trying to prevent these bodies, especially the, you know, the, the unions, yeah. which is the U, uh, UCP always targets them, from, from trying to set up these third-party advertisers flush with cash to promote specific candidates and specific issues. You know, so in, in a sense, the 30,000 limit is actually a political device, in my, in my view, designed to prevent some of these big money uh, associations from unduly influencing uh, the political process. But, but in a sense, the 30,000, if, if a person is very rich, right, um, they can also, also tap into $30,000 uh, to try, try to influence the, the uh, outcome of, of, the, uh, of the municipal elections. Um, you know, when we talk about a limit of $30,000, when you take a look at how much money was spent on your average winning campaign yeah. in the last election, that's fully half of it. You can fund half of a winning campaign on $30,000 across this province. Yeah, but the thing is, the thirty thousand is just for third-party advertisers. Right. So these are entities trying to uh, advocate for specific issues during the campaign. Uh, but if you look at the, camp- the, the, the donations limit itself, it's five thousand dollars per candidate. Right. So right. which means. Um, if somebody is very well endowed and they have a lot of money, they can contribute as many candidates as they want. But a key question is, will they be able to influence decisions that go on in, in, in City Hall just by contributing to, to, to all these candidates? I have my doubts on that. Uh, but certainly, I think that for, for most Albertans, when they hear 30000 uh, it sounds like it, it's a lot of money. Uh, but if you compare us to, for example, what happens in the United States, in the United States they have these super PACs. Yes, exactly. That, yeah, and, and these are advocacy groups, and they have unlimited sources of funding from individuals and corporations. So I think the UCP, by establishing the 30,000 limit, is hoping to maybe stem um, you know, efforts to unduly influence politics. But I, in my view, the 30000 is just too high. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's just too high for Albertans. Uh, but I think, to, to emphasize my point, the key here, it, it's trying to undermine certain groups, associations, 
who have been very antagonistic to the provincial government from unduly influencing the outcome of municipal elections. As voters, um, what can we do to sort of make sure that we're not being unduly influenced by this third-party advertising noise? I mean, it's going to be out there, right? What, what is the recourse yes. for a voter to make sure that they're not being swayed this way? Yes, I think we, we've, we've seen this kind of third-party advertising at all levels, municipal, provincial, and federal. I think voters should be very, very astute. They should be very careful in terms of the agenda these uh, entities are trying to promote. Uh, make sure you're getting all you're getting your information from different sources. You know, because these are groups that are, have a specific agenda here, trying to trying to. Uh, convey and sway voters to vote for specific candidates, you know, whether they're promoting development, construction, uh, in the construction industry, yeah. re- real estate firms, you know. So uh, voters should should be very cautious uh, and try to get information from all sources uh, during the mini- coming municipal elections. Yeah, it's going to be a different one than we've seen before. Uh, Shaldine, thanks so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. Oh, all the best, Shay. Take care. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. That is Sheldon Zmensa, who is a political scientist prof over at McEwen University. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.